What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right. What's up? And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jacob Turner. He is a financial advisor, top 100 advisor by Investopedia as well. Um, he co-owns a firm, Moment Wealth, with his brother, right? You both are 50-50 owners? Correct. And uniquely enough, he played in the MLB. You were one of the highest paid draft picks of all time, right? Yeah, I, I got drafted in 2009, uh, was the ninth overall pick at the time, was one of the highest paid high school draftees of all time. Now, fortunately, guys are getting paid even more money, which is great to see. Yeah, it's crazy when you like look at athletes and it's like Patrick Mahomes got the biggest contract of all time. And now he's like the 10th highest paid quarterback, even though he's like number one, because every year the money drastically changes. It's wild. Well, especially now with how transparent the media companies are in terms of how much revenue they're getting on these deals. And uh, I also think too, I posted about this on, on Twitter, this concept of some of these smaller leagues paying massive premiums to get guys on the upfront, like live golf paying Phil Mickelson, $200 million to sign with them. You know, if you look at MLS, you know, getting messy, giving them part of the team where yeah, you know, the money and the money in pro sports. That looks like it's helping bigger. though. The messy. Yeah, deal no, definitely. I, I think if, if I was a other if I was an MLS owner of any team other than the Miami team, I'd be even happier because it's just a trickle down effect for those guys. And they're not even paying for it. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, not to get off topic, but the MLS has a lot of room to grow probably of any league in the United States to actually like, okay, why are we not soccer? Like everybody in the world loves soccer. U S is pretty much the best at every sport. What have we done that like soccer for men at least is just not a good spot and nobody wants to stay here. And hopefully that's like, the the switch um and then one other thing before we go back into your bio but did you see the phil mickelson stuff about how he gambled like 1.2 billion dollars or something was his total gambling amount that's insane i think i think the more interesting thing is the story that i don't know phil at all but the story that he crafts in the media is a is a very well calculated one and it's interesting to see the other side of uh an individual that i've seen a lot of the good on just from watching from the outside uh, that there might be some skeletons in the closet there. Well, I didn't read like what, I think it was like not that much money, whether he won or lost. Like he's like pretty close to like a, a break even, but that's like really funny that you spent a billion dollars total on bets. Like that's just, wow. That's just a different level of just being a degenerate, but that's a big contract that he got too. Yeah, no, he made, he's made a lot of money and he's done really well for himself. And if that's how he chooses to spend it, uh, so be it. So be it, got to get a thrill somewhere. But okay, let's go back. Let's kind of, I, I want to hear your story. I mean, obviously we're in a study group together. We know each other somewhat well, but your story is a really cool and unique one and also helps, you know, push you to why you work with athletes and a lot of the lessons that you learned. And I think for a lot of people here, like how many athlete pro athletes are listening? Like, I don't know, not very many. One of my good friends from high school plays in the NFL. You know, maybe he listens. I doubt it. 
Um, but I think there is one, this is interesting for people to kind of hear about that life. It's not overly talked about to hear about kind of the struggles that they have. And three, like what we can learn from athletes that we can apply to other business owners, um, and just people in general. Yeah. And I think as we kind of walk through this too, Thomas, just the idea, there's so many lessons I learned along the way, sitting on the other side of the table as a client. So yeah, you know, it's funny when you, even when you made that introduction and you said, you know, Jacob's a financial advisor, I kind of still cringe hearing that because, uh, financial advisor is not a term that I've always loved in the past. And, uh, so my journey, you know, like I mentioned, I got drafted in 2009. I was really blessed to come into a lot of money in a really short period of time. And, had some really great financial people around me. My mom was a CPA growing up. My dad owned a small business. So always was kind of understanding of money and how the world works, but I never had more than a couple hundred dollars in my bank account to overnight having a couple million dollars. It was a shock to me. And honestly, I was more scared than anything else. I just didn't want to end up on 30 for 30 broke, which is an ESPN docuseries that walks through how athletes lost all their money. Well, isn't the statistic there? It's like, I think 88% of NFL players are bankrupt within two years. I think that's the highest in the NFL, but I think all of them are like 80 to 90% have no money left over within three years. True. And it makes a really good, uh, makes a really good Twitter hook. But I think the reality is actually a little bit different. Let me tell you why, because most athletes don't make the money that we see, right? We don't, um, most athletes aren't Bryce Harper making $300 million. They might be a guy that got to you know the NFL for one or two years, and maybe combined made seven hundred thousand to a million bucks. Still not an insignificant amount of money, but then when you're traveling around, you're living that lifestyle. It can be pretty easy to spend two fifty to three fifty in a year, not doing anything super fancy. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think the athletes are getting better educated on it. But you know, my I've always loved personal finance. When I was playing, I was always the guy asking people what they were investing in, who they were using, what they were you know, doing for them. And I knew probably, you know, maybe five years before I got done playing that I wanted to do something with personal finance. I didn't know what that would be. And, you know, since that time I, you know, got done playing in 2019, we started our firm at the beginning of 2021 with really that focus on helping, you know, high growth entrepreneurs and professional athletes. And, you know, like we talked a little bit about, there's a lot of similarities between the two in terms of the planning and the way of thinking in general. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I'm curious to kind of hear from your experience and maybe a few points on the good or the bad of what you went through, not like, I guess, baseball wise, but more so of like your financial journey, because I, I'm sure that what you went through is part of the reason why you're like, ah, maybe there's got to be a better way to help these people. Because from all the stories that I hear are, you know, obviously there's so many great financial planners in the world, right? There are so many great firms, but also like who are people going to go after athletes? And a lot of times they're like, these are brand new people that are young. Plenty of them come from families that don't have financial expertise above them. That's a pretty easy group to target and be able to take money, provide little value from. Yeah. I think, you know, for athletes in general, and I think this is true for anybody, as you mentioned, there's a so many people out there that are really good financial planners. There's amazing people out there to help you manage your money. I think we're seeing it more and more people showing their true expertise, which is awesome. But ultimately it comes down to communication. And when I think about my own experiences, a lot of what I experienced wasn't so much that I had people that didn't have the expertise, but maybe I didn't have the people that could communicate in a way that I understood. And ultimately as the client, you're sitting on one side of the table and you're, you're kind of shaking your head. Yes. 
you've had some level of success to be in the position you're in because whether you're an athlete, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a key employee, whether you're a diligent saver, like you've worked really hard to even have the chance where you're saying like, I should, I think I should engage with a financial planner. And you don't want to be sitting on the other side of the table feeling quote unquote stupid or yeah. uneducated about questions that like, you know, should I ask that question? You know, he's mentioned that term mutual fund three times. I don't even know what that means, but now we're kind of down the path. Should I go back and ask him what that means again? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think, you know, not to get off topic, but you and I both are content creators and use that to funnel to our business. But I think that the power that it creates for us is people can see the way that we can explain things in a really basic form. Um, and it's something that I always do with my clients. I'm always like, Hey, I'm not going to, I don't want to pretend like you guys are dumb or that your knowledge is low, but I'm going to explain this to you in the most basic way. And if you understand it, just tell me like, great, I understand it move past it. Because like the, that's the first thing most people come to me and say is that like, I left my last financial planner because they didn't communicate one, two, like I just never understood anything they were doing. Like they didn't care to educate me. I want to be educated in everything throughout the process. Or they were just kind of like, people are shameful or scared. They're Everybody thinks they're behind or their education is lower. And it's really hard to like feel good about the work that your financial planner is doing or the team when you're not sure why they're doing it or what they're doing. It's just kind of happening. Yeah, I think you you touched on it too. Just that idea of education. One thing I always thought about was the the fee that I'm paying or the investment I'm making with whatever financial planner I'm using. I want to feel like I'm also getting educated along the way because ultimately, and I tell every client this, like they've done the hard work to earn the money. It's just simply our job to help guide them, educate them so that they can ultimately make really good financial decisions. You know, like it's not my job to tell them that they need to go, you know, route A or route B. It's to outline the pros and cons and get educated around which route they feel like might be best for them. And I think that's one of the things that was missing a little bit in some of my communications early on as a client was I felt like instead of being educated around what the options were, I was being told that this was the way. Whether that was the way or not, I wanted to be educated and understood, okay, is this the only way or should I be looking at other things along this and as an athlete, you know, one of the one of the detriments as an athlete is you generally have a level of confidence that is probably higher than the average is how you got to where you're at. But on the money side, it can be a detriment because you're in the locker room and you hear, you know, your buddy talking about some tax strategy that his quote unquote CPA is using to save him a bunch of money in taxes. And you think that that you should be doing that, too. And then when you bring it up, your financial planner is like, you know, that's that's not actually a thing. So there's a lot of intricacies to navigate there. Yeah, I think that kind of shows like, you know, one person hears things and then they try to communicate it to you and like they just learn this new thing, right? They actually don't understand at all what's happening. Now they're teaching you about what you should be doing to be like them. And that's kind of just kind of, I, I find that it goes through the grapevine all the time. I have clients like, hey, what about this? And I'm like, nope, that makes no sense for you. Or what about this? Nope, that makes no sense for you. Like we all hear these things. But I also think the other hard part for athletes too is, lifestyle, right? Like you are around other athletes where you might be that I'm making a million or $2 million a year, but you also might have somebody in your locker room making $45 million a year. And there's events you're going to go to, there's the cars that you need, there's the vacations. And on top of that, you still need like the physical therapist and the trainer and probably the chef. And it is a really high cost lifestyle. And I think people look at athletes and like, they're so dumb, they're spending all this money, but like also one is yes, they're falling into some traps, but two is 
it's an expensive lifestyle to try to maintain your body, your physicality, your athleticism to survive long enough in, in any of the leagues. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. When you think about, I remember when I was playing, I always would tell my wife, I'm like, well, we have these expenses, but these are quote unquote baseball expenses. Yeah. At the needs. Time, yeah. At the time we were, we had a house uh, where we lived today in St. Louis, but you know, during the season I'm doing short-term rentals everywhere. As you know, with short-term rentals, like the cost of rent that is going to be a lot higher because I'm going month to month. So now I'm paying a 20 to 40% premium on this apartment. I got to rent all the furniture. I'm flying my family around to come see me. I have a personal trainer. There's a lot of, you know, quote unquote, baseball expenses that that go into just being able to compete at that level. And to your point, you are around people that are in completely different spectrums, but you're in the same locker room together. You know, if you're making major league minimum, you're making somewhere around $750,000 a year versus, you know, there's guys in the same locker room, to your point, making $36 million. Those are completely different worlds that you're living in, but they're combined and you're one of the same people because you're in this circle. And I remember my, my very first spring training, we had a guy that was making, I would call it like $15 million a year. And he had the Mercedes dealership show up at spring training with all the new cars. So like the S class, the SUVs, everything. And I'll never forget this. After practice, he walks out there and he pointed at like the white S550 and he's like, I'll take that one. And I remember walking back into the training room and asking like, so I guess there's like no negotiation on that. You just pay the sticker. And it's like, oh yeah, that's just, you know, and it was like a culture shock to me because I, you know, I came from a world where, you know, my, my parents knew what a budget was growing up and like instilled that in us. So this was a, a alternate reality is how I describe it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's actually kind of crazy to think about. I think it's because an athlete, like you're both pro athletes, even though this might be like, you can almost think of the best guys, like the CEO and the bottom guys, kind of like that entry level employee, but it's something that you see less often outside of that world, right? Like somebody works at a business, their CEO might have a Lamborghini, but they don't necessarily be like, okay, I probably need a Lamborghini too, yeah. even though I can't afford it. It's kind of this weird dynamic that specifically applies to athletes. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you help over help them overcome this? Cause I think that's going to be one of the hardest parts. I've always heard it's hard to work with athletes because of this piece. I think at the most basic level, it's showing them what the value of the dollar really is for them. And one of the biggest advantages an athlete has is they're getting all this money at a really young age. So they have this amazing runway to let the money invest and compound so even something as simple as showing them, hey, if we didn't buy the $100,000 car and we bought the $60,000 car, something's still really nice, but it's not going to be, you know, the $100,000 Range Rover, you know, that $40,000 in between, what can we do with that? And what does that look like for you in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And really trying to start extrapolating out the time frame for them to show them that they are they have the ability to create this snowball at such a young age, which as we both know, is one of the hardest things to do in building wealth. Once you have the snowball and you got it going down the hill, there's some amazing things you can do in your life with it. And as an athlete, you can get given the snowball at an age like 18, 22, 25, 30 years old, where now all of a sudden you have 30 to 40 years to not only let the money compound, but also be be taking little bits and pieces of it along the way while it's still moving down the mountain. Yeah. I mean, if you make $5 million over a three-year contract and you know, let's say that's 3 million after taxes and you spend half and invest half. $1.5 million invested for 40 years, you're going to be looking really good. I mean, this is something that 
all of us as financial planners harp on, right? And I think it's part of the discussion that get, gets neglected by the payoff debt crowd, right? Like paying off debt is a very different choice in your 60s than it is in your 20s, right? It's something that I work with plenty of doctors and it's something that we have to help them realize too is, yeah, it does feel like you have a lot of debt and I do get that you want to pay off your debt, but you're 32 already. If you take another eight years to aggressively pay off your debt before you start investing, that difference of what you need to do is crazy. But if you are able to balance the two, you know, the, the future is very different. I think this is something that we always want everybody to understand is the, you know, you don't want to necessarily be the fire crowd and like give up everything today, but you do want to find the balance of like, how do I give the longest time frame possible for my money to be invested? Well, I think that's another thing too. And I think this is true for, for clients in any aspect. We as financial planners, one of our sole duties, right, is that we want to help our clients build the muscle of saving, right? So whether they're making $100,000 or $10 million, we want to help them understand what the value of saving some portion of that money might be. And then it's not a choice. Yeah. But then the, the flip side of that is at some point, you need to loosen the reins a little bit and be able to enjoy it too. And it's this weird, you know, it's a total first world problem is how I describe it. But like you save all this money, you have this big snowball and then you're so scared to take anything off of it. And then every time you do, you don't really feel good about enjoying it. You're just worried that, well, if I, if I keep doing this, like, am I going to run out of money? And I, you know, I mean, I can remember even as simple as I remember the first advisor that showed me a Monte Carlo analysis. So this analysis, all these different scenarios, and it came back with this percentage and I'll never forget the percentage. It was 86%. And my first thought was, okay, so 14% of the time I run out of money. Now, you and I both know it doesn't mean 14% of the time I run out of money. But the way that they had communicated to me, which kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that's all really about the communication was, okay, well, 86% of the time it's going to be good and 14% of the time it could be really bad. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want that. Like, shouldn't I want 100%? And I think uh, there's this, this constant tug of war between saving and spending, especially at such a young age, because you and I both know if we run an analysis for any individual and you're extrapolating out over 30, 40, 50 years, and you tweak the return a little bit, you tweak the spending a little bit. I mean, we can see massive differences in what the outcome looks like. Yeah. I think that's for me, the hard part of using financial planning software is like, I use it as more of like an aggregator than like a, here's the results because for my clients, most of them, right, are 30s. You know, I have some clients in the 40s, you know, some early 50s, but in general, most average ages in their 30s is like, okay, 30 years from now, these these scenarios are wildly different. If I use 10% versus 8% versus 6%, if you end up choosing to get the next house, if you increase spending by 1,000 or 2,000, if you double your vacation, like these variables are all way too all over the place. So what, what we really focus in on is like, what are good metrics to follow to help set you up for success, right? Like, and maybe that's, hey, you're, you don't really care to retire early. Maybe that's, let's be investing 20% of your income and let's fine tune the investment portfolio, where that goes, the tax planning, all of that. But I think so many people think it's like, here's the goal, you need to do X dollars a year to get there. But if inflation's 4% versus two, you're so far off. If returns are 1% off, you're so far off. And with that much time frame, you really just kind of need to like set yourself in the right direction and then continue to course correct as, as things come. But I think people get so focused on like 
what is the exact dollar amount I need today because they want certainty. And there's just no possible shot that you can have any true certainty. Maybe athletes, right? Like if you're going to get $5 million invested in your twenties, I'm pretty certain you're going to be okay in your fifties to retire and not make an income, right? Like you don't need a whole lot at all to make that happen unless your lifestyle is insane. But I, I do think that is a really hard part about financial planning for people and something that I haven't had to put myself on the side of the table to see those results. But even when I'm helping clients and I see like 75%, I'm still like, oh man, they're probably going to view this in a bad way. And then you look at like Kitsis and all of the other research shows that like 50% is actually a good spot to be in. Um, But it's still weird to think and view that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you and I both feel strongly about this, but this concept that, you know, this quote unquote financial plan that you put together, which is really just a, a strategy moving forward is how I would describe it is something that is going to change every year, right? And all we're trying to do, to your point, is we're trying to get directionally correct, but there's going to be so many things in your life, and especially for an athlete, but for any young individual that's earning significant money, there's going to be a million things that change. I know for me, at 18, I didn't have a wife and kids. Now I have a wife and four kids at 32. My life changed a lot from 18 to 30, and the things that I spend money on, the things that I value now, are so different than what I thought like at 18, I'm like, oh, well, I want that thing. And now I look at it and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't buy that thing because I really focus on this now. But you and I both both see that with clients where it's it's a constantly updating. It's an evolution of where they're going. And to your point about some of the stuff that Kitsis has put out, one of the interesting things that I've come across this year that I've really tried to harp on with clients, especially those that have really solved the need for they're never going to have to worry about money again if we continue to make a lot of the blocking and tackling of personal finance, okay? But really starting to think about like, how do I want to spend this money? What are the things that bring me joy in my life? What are you know, charities I want to not only you know spend my money on, but I also want to contribute my time and my effort and my energy to? Because there has been a lot of studies that show that people that work with a lot of qualified professionals, and you know, if they're working with a qualified financial advisor, leave more money in the legacy bucket than maybe they intended to. That's not always inherently a bad thing, but what I will say is you can do a lot more in your life at 30 to 50 than you're probably going to be able to do at 70 to 80. Yeah. Yeah. It, going back to what you're talking about is a very interesting philosophy. When I was reading um, Psychology of Money, one of the biggest takeaways I had is that we all have this like weird weird thing where like we look back five years or 10 years and we're like, we are so different. Like what we like is different. What we value is different. How we spend our money is different. How we spend our time is different. But then we look forward and we think we know all of those things, right? Like we look to retirement. We're like, we know in retirement, we're going to want this, or we know that there's no way we want to retire before 60. And you're like, you know, that the time from now to 60 is about as you know, you weren't even born 30 years ago, right? But we think that we know what we're going to want. We don't even know what the world's going to look like. We have to take our best guesses, obviously, but it is this weird thing where take your best guess, try to plan for it. But good financial planning is like creating flexibility and options to totally change your mind. But I do agree on the legacy side. It's something that I think my clients, I'm working in really hard with my clients. We both work with super high income, high wealth people. And a lot of them are really driven by really high savings investment rates, right? Like they've done well, but they actually struggle to spend money. And, you know, maybe I have a couple of clients on the opposite side of that and we have to help them spend a little bit less money. But what I've found is more people are actually on the side of we save so much, we invest so much, we don't spend anything. Like I have some clients that have like 90% investment rates and I'm like, yeah. 
why, why do you have the smallest house? Like, why do you have the oldest car? Like, why have you not been on a vacation in five years? Like, is, are you trying to die with a hundred million dollars? And their goal is not yeah. to, but they've never had somebody help push them into it because most of them also, and I'm sure you're the same way came from families without money. And yeah. so they've never learned how to spend. All they've learned is all I have to do is save. And I think a good financial planner, like part of our job is to help people give, spend, do things they enjoy and, you know, actually enjoy the money that they've worked so hard to create. Yeah. Well, it I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Even you mentioned Psychology of Money, which is probably my favorite personal finance book out there. Same, by far. And that concept that we're all shaped by the 0.00001% of experiences we've had with money. So a lot of the people that I think we both work with, when they get to that high net worth or that ultra high net worth stage, they built that wealth. They weren't given that wealth. So they've seen the other side of it. Like I, you know, I came from a situation where we didn't have it. So I want to make sure I never lose it. And it almost becomes this, I don't think addiction would be the wrong word, but you see, you become addicted to seeing the snowball continue to grow. And you're like, oh, the bank counts at 5 million, the bank counts at 10 million, the bank counts at 15. And, you know, if if Thomas and Jacob are right, the bank count could be at 30 or 40 down the road. But really what's, what's the goal? Nobody gets an award for dying with the most amount of money is is a term that I always say. And I think that's true. Like one of our jobs as partners for our clients is help is to really dig deeper with them and help them understand because a, a common pushback I get Thomas is, well, I have everything I want. I, you know, I don't really want a million dollar house or a couple million dollar house. I don't need a nicer car. I totally get that. Totally get that. But I can guarantee there's probably other things in your life that might bring joy to you that you might not have thought about, you know, like yeah. if, if it's, even if it's not a, a quote unquote 501c3 charity, but you have somebody where you're like, Hey, I, I'd love to be able to pour into them and give them a gift and see where it goes in their life. You know, like, let's think about doing that where I think it's our job as planners to really get them to start thinking more strategically about the money. And then also to your point, instilling that confidence in them that they can spend the money. Cause that can be one of the hardest things. You finally go on the vacation and all you're thinking about on the vacation is like, why don't, should we go out to dinner tonight? Yeah. You're, you're, you already did the vacation. Like you're good. Go do it, have fun, enjoy it. Yeah, that's something like I've personally been working out with myself and honestly, a lot of my clients. So in the last couple of months, I've had a couple of clients who are getting married and we've been talking about like, do you combine finances? Do you not? And there's always one side that's the bigger spender and the less spender. And I'm like, hey, guys, think about this. Like this person, the one that spends less is always like, I don't know if I want to combine finances, right? Like I just, you know, don't know if I want, like if I would put in the money, it's going to get spent. And I'm like, okay, think about this, right? They're spending that money now you're spending this money now, you're in a totally good spot. Let's say, you know, especially because most of my clients making $500,000 have a high savings rate. I'm like, what's the worst thing that happens, right? Like this person spends, you know, an extra 500 bucks a month, right? Like if you give an extra 500 bucks a month, that's actually a good amount of things you can do, right? That's, you know, more clothes that might be, they eat out extra times, you know, they go get a smoothie, whatever it is. You make $500,000 and you overspend by $6,000 a year. That's 1% you're not going to get thrown off by 1%. Like you might want to continue to track it. You might want to make sure that you're kind of staying like that this isn't continuing to be 1% and then 1% and then 1% and then 1%. But in general, I find like us who have our mind driven by money and understanding money and trying to save and invest, like we think that these small mistakes are really what's going to throw us off. But then you go look and you're like, if you had a mortgage at, you know, half a percent higher interest rate, you know, that could cost you 
50 to a hundred thousand dollars more. Like that yeah. might be an easier way to plan things or get a little smaller house than worry about these small expenditures. But then the other thing I really like that you talked about too, is the numbers game. And it is a hard thing. Like I find this, a lot of my clients are so driven by numbers and to a fault. Like we had a client that we were working with that was going through a business sale and they, their, the value of their business was like four X what it was three years ago. Like they are at the point where it's like all owned by their family minus like 10%. They could sell and never worry about money again. They actually don't even have to worry about money before the sale. They could sell this business. The it's a single child, single grandchild. So like grandchild going to be a billionaire pretty much. They said no to the sale of the business because it was slow, slightly less than what the value that they put in their head of what they wanted their ultimate net worth to be. Even though dad's not in good health, you know, could be the last few years of his life with their thinking. And he was so stubborn to say, I don't want that. I don't want to take it because it was less than the number I had in my head, even though we would be fine for the whole rest of our life. And I, th I think this is like a lot more common than people think. We all think that we're immune to that. But I think we all play life and wealth accumulation and business as a video game. And there's good and bad, right? Like the like work hard, accomplish, you know, you can do this is really good. The downside is that like, when do you stop playing? And I don't think yep. that is that is something that really almost anybody has naturally the ability to do. Yeah, it's a it's just knowing, you know, I think psychology money talks about this, but it's knowing what is enough. And there's a lot of beauty in enough. I mean, I had a conversation with a client very similar where they have enough money to do everything that they're currently doing in their life. And when I've asked the question around what are the other things that you want to do in your life from a monetary perspective, there's not anything else that's top of mind. They have the house, they have the cars, the kids go to the school they want, they go on the vacations. He works about the amount of hours he wants to work. And he had this new opportunity presented to him where he's going to be able to two or three X his potential income. And it's a significant amount of money. But I had to remind him that, hey, remember, you're still making a really good income over here and you're doing all the other things that you said are really important to you. And if you take this other opportunity, you're going to be working more. You're going to be away from your family more. The vacations are going to go down. And yeah, your bank account is going to be bigger. Yeah. But at the end of the day, is that what really matters? And it's a weird, it's a weird tug of war. And we're in a business that we help people manage their finances. But I think that's a really important thing. And I mean, through my own experiences, I've had a lot of those similar thoughts myself where well, like, yeah, I could do that thing, or I could make that investment, or I could add this complexity to my life. I could do short-term rentals or whatever it is, not knocking the short-term rental crowd. <laughs> I could do short-term rentals, whatever, whatever that thing is. But if I add that additional complexity to my life, is the outcome going to be enough to sway what it's adding? Because, you know, you can't have the good without the bad. Yeah, no, I love that. I've had that same situation with a few clients too. And I think that's a big value that we have, right? Like everybody can say what their values are, but everybody's values get distorted a little bit by money changes, right? Like that yep. is a lot of money. They're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And our job is like, congratulate them and say like, that's really, really awesome. But are you willing to give up all the things that you said you valued for more money when you just said you don't have any need for more money, right? Like, let's think logically through this. I, I love that you did that. But I do find that that's, 
it's hard, right? Because there's like two people, right? If you have the, the same situation, right? This person is like just on a pursuit for more money. So they keep doing it. It's very different than the other person who's like, I just really love what I do. I find so much value, right? Like, I mean, we could even probably say you, like, I don't know your financial situation at all, but let's say pro athlete done. You're like, I don't actually need more money. Why am I working? Like, I guess I could spend every second with my family at home, but you know, you probably find a lot of value in helping these people. And like, I know me, I couldn't not work. Like I find so much value in what I do. I love helping other people. I love being intellectually stimulated. I could not just be like, money's good. I go sell my business in like three to five years. Like I've had a couple of people like, Hey, we would love to buy your business like super early, get you behind it. You help market, drive people in and blah, blah, sell off, sell off in the sunset. And I'm like, that just would not be fun. Like to me, yeah. like, I just can't imagine taking money. And in three years, like, what would I do? Like, I, I just love what I do, but that's very different than the person who's like only continue what they do to chase more money when they don't need money, which is why you can never give like a exact piece of advice to somebody without truly knowing them, their intentions, what they value, where they're going, all that stuff. Well, I think that's one of the things too, that I respect the most about you is like, I think there's a lot of value in what I would call earned experience where you have this experience going through something that either it's a client, an individual, a family, a relationship that you have that you can offer insights through earned experience. Like you've been through what they're going through. And as you continue to build your business, it's much the same way. Like you said, like, okay, well, we had an opportunity to potentially sell, but you know, then I'm starting to think, okay, well, this is what I talk to my clients about all the time. And you're starting to get all those same emotions. And ultimately with financial planning, you know, it is this combination of art and science together. And it is not something that you can do on a spreadsheet. And I know there's a uh, there's some great spreadsheet people out there. They'll send me all their spreadsheets and I appreciate it because I'm not great with spreadsheets, but it's this combination of, you know, what does the spreadsheet say versus what do I actually want in my life? And much like you, Thomas, like when I got done playing baseball, I, I told my wife, Kristen, you know, I love to do stuff. I I need to be stimulated in that way. And for me, building this business has been a great way to do it. My goal since the beginning, and it's still my goal, is one of the reasons why I post so much content is I want to educate as many people as possible. I'm not going to work with every single person. And every single person that I talk to about potentially becoming a client is not going to become a client. But if they can go through the process and they can feel better educated about whatever decision they made, that's a win for me. Because that was the biggest thing for me. I, I felt like, for lack of a better term, I was flying blind. I had all this money and I was picking and choosing people based on how nice the conference room was and how much I yeah. liked them. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a hard part. I'm curious for you, like you maybe have this unique experience of going through a retirement. I'm curious what you learned by like graduating that life stage and maybe also what you've learned from other athletes in it. Cause maybe your experience was really good. You knew you were going to kind of yeah. jump into something else, but I think like I've actually written posts about this. I think there is a lot to learn about from athletes on retirement. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, my, somebody asked me the other day, a, a, a guy that's getting ready to transition out. And he was like, Hey man, I love what you're doing. I would love to get your experiences. And I love nothing more than to be able to share my experiences. But the first thing I told him was it was really hard. And I know it's easy to look at, like, I have this business now, it's going really well, I love what I'm doing. But at the beginning, it was really hard. I got done playing, and it wasn't like there was a million people calling me and wanting to hire me to go do this job. You know, my phone stopped ringing. The people that were calling me that wanted tickets or wanted insider access or whatever it may be, or thought that I was cool, those people weren't calling anymore. And it, it was really challenging. And then I think from a financial side, uh, the conversation that I have a lot with clients is, 
know, whether you sell your business, whether you have the big contract as an athlete, at some point in your life, you're going to get to this point where you're like, I am richer on paper than I've ever been. I've made as much money as I can in my in my athletic career or in my business, yet I feel poorer than I've ever been because now I'm not making that that steady paycheck that was coming once every two weeks. And I got to learn to live on this nest egg that I built up. And like we talked about earlier in the conversation, you're so used to seeing it continue to grow. You have this savings rate. You're seeing the money continue to get invested in Compound. And now you're going to start pulling off of it. It's a, it's just a weird human psychology. I think everybody goes through it at some point when they quote unquote retire. You know, for an athlete or for an entrepreneur that sells their business, they're going through it just earlier on. Yeah. I, I think another interesting thing to learn from athletes that we don't think about is everybody when, when they talk about, you know, retirement and everything's like, yeah, I'm going to work till I'm 65 or I'm going to work till I'm 60 or, you know, 70 or whatever. I think the experience of being an athlete can kind of show you that you don't always choose retirement, right? Like everybody joins every professional sports league and they're going to be the exception. They're going to have the, you know, maybe not Tom Brady's career, but maybe they're going to have a 12 to 15 year career. But in all reality, most times it's, you know, you get moved out earlier. You have an injury that stops you from being able to do it. Like that's real life, right? Like that is actually, if you talk to a lot of people who are retired, there is not that many people. I mean, at least it's not hundred percent for sure. Maybe it's like half of that are the people that are like, I hit 62. I had my retirement party with everybody else. Life is good. Like it, it normally comes from some other situation. And I think that's actually a lot harder to go through, but it's also a lot more, it happens a lot more often than people like to admit. No, for sure. It, it's a challenging situation because you're getting, the human side of it is you're getting ripped away from something that you've been doing your whole life. So whether you retire, quote unquote, traditionally around 60, you've probably been doing something for 20 to 30 years. Now, all of a sudden, you're not doing that. You're not socializing with the same people. If you sell a business, you've built this thing from generally from scratch or you bought it and you built this thing, you've watched it grow and you've invested every day and every day when you lay down at night you thought you know you thought about that business and now you're going to let it go and you're going to wake up and the question i always ask is well what are you going to do on tuesday because nobody ever thinks about it they're so ingrained in whatever they're doing whether they're an athlete they think it's never going to end and then it ends yeah and there's no going back and what what's really interesting is everything that you did keeps on going without you baseball baseball doesn't miss jacob turner you know and nobody outside of huge Detroit Tiger fans or somebody that maybe saw me play in the Marlins and was disappointed with my performance knows who Jacob Turner is and baseball is can continue to go on. And that can be one of the hardest things to transition out of, whether it's you as an employee, whether you, it's a business owner, whether it's you as an athlete, that thing that you've given your entire life to, it's going to keep going. Yeah. And I think it's part of realizing too, that like, we all feel like we are the world and the world revolves around us to then realize like, you know, especially as an athlete, like, obviously, I don't know, everybody knows my story. Like I was pretty good in high school, went and played in college, ended up getting hurt and choosing to stop play. But like every day, all it did was revolve around sports. It was the training to the food to like, you know, everything that has to do with it. And your life is very like perfect to a T has to fit you. Like I needed my dad there to be able to rebound with me. I needed the gym open to be able to do this. Like I needed my mom to make the meals. Like you, you really need everything situated and so you grow up in this world where everything does revolve around you and everything's perfect and all of the hard work that you put in is directly leading to what you get there. But at some point that does change. And then you learn like, well, the world go, you know, goes without me. Like 
it isn't all about me. What are the things that I can take away from this? And I think probably the thing that both you and I, obviously you're a way better athlete than me, but you take away from the hard work of sports is that like, if I put in the work at something, I can be good at it. Like, I think that's, people look back on who a lot of the most successful people are. They're people who somehow in their childhood was able to build confidence, right? Like that's the number one thing that's lacking among people is just like thinking that you're enough to be able to do the thing that you want to do. When in reality, there isn't much that stands out between any business owner. It's that they had the irrational confidence to believe in themselves that they could achieve it. Yeah, man, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. It's being disciplined. It's creating confidence. The other thing I would add is just being humble. One of the hardest things about transitioning is from you go from this professional athlete setting where people are looking up to you, you walk in somewhere and somebody maybe recognizes you, it feels really good inside. So nobody cares who you are. Nobody recognizes you. Everybody's going about their Monday and Tuesday and and they're not thinking about you. So you have to be really humble to say, I'm willing to start at the bottom. And just because I was good at this thing, doesn't mean I'm going to be good at the next thing. And for me, I mean, I, when I first got done and I looked around at, at different opportunities, I thought about it from the standpoint of like, what skills can I learn? But I didn't think about it at all from the amount of income I could earn. The best skills I learned were from telling people I will come work for free because I just want to learn the skills. And I, it's, you know, I know that I think the title of this podcast is the long game, but you're playing the long game, right? You're, you're learning the skills, understanding that if I, if I understand the skills and I stay disciplined long enough, this can become something really significant. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I, I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but for me, like I started my first job at a broker dealer, like it was not the right situation. Luckily, like I was still doing pretty well on the financial planning side and I like put out to the world that I wanted to go like actually learn. Like I'm, I'm not in the place to teach me real financial planning, like learn how to drive new people to business, like the soft skills. And I ended up with a bunch of offers and I took working with Justin Castelli and it was like a 30% of the salary of everywhere else. Like, like I would have made three X anywhere else I went, but I knew that if I did that for a couple of years, that would be by far the best thing that ever could be. And now I probably may, I'll make like three times what I would have made anywhere else because I took the opportunity to say, this is the person who's going to be able to teach me the most where I can learn and be shaped into, you know, the things that like, you just can't go learn anywhere. Right. And I think this is something that I hope people take away more in their 20s. Like, I think your 20s really is different as an athlete, obviously, but your 20s really is about learning. It's not about maximizing income because a lot of times people choose the job with the money with that's very steady over the place that can, you know, 10x where you can get later down the line. Yeah, I would agree, man. It's uh, you have to be thinking about what you're ultimately trying to accomplish. The way I describe it with clients is you have to start with the end in mind. So everything we're doing from a financial planning perspective, we're starting with the end in mind. And then we're working our way backwards to understand, well, what steps should I take today? But you can't take this giant bite of the apple. You're just taking little baby steps every single day. And you got to just keep showing up every single day, whether that's in the business that you have, whether that's in the relationships you have, whether that's in the work you're doing, it's just continuing to show up every single day. And, you know, I think you're a testament to that, even on social media, you know, the reason why you've been successful on social media is simply because you've showed up every single day and you've gotten better. And as you continue to write more, your writing is getting better and you're being able to articulate and communicate better and better. It's that way with everything in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the reps. I'm curious. And maybe we both do this at the end, just to wrap up, like what are two to three things that you think that we could take away from athletes and apply to everybody else? 
the number one thing is just discipline. If you look at high performing athletes, Tiger Woods is probably the best example of this that's in, been in the public eye, but his discipline to work harder and longer than everybody else. We live in a world now where efficiency and meta work and whatever other term you want to throw out there is a thing. And I'm not going to dive into that, but at the end of the day, if you want anything to happen that's significant in your life, it takes you working at it. It takes you working at it consistently and it takes you showing up on the days you don't want to show up. And it takes you showing up on the days that you got your teeth kicked in the day before. So yeah, I know you mentioned two or three. That's the one thing that I would say I learned so much in sports by failing and being able to show up the next day after I failed. It just takes, it takes discipline. Well, that's the lesson cool two. About, yeah. Well, the cool part about discipline though, man, is it's totally in your control. Like, yeah. You get to the side. It's a muscle you can develop and get better at. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like I, you know, I'll talk to financial planners and they'll be like, oh, you know, I've been working on content, for example, for a month. And like, I'm just, you know, it's not working. And I'm like, okay, like if you went and picked up a basketball today, would you be in the NBA? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why can you think through the level of sports that it takes reps to be good? But like everybody looks at like jobs or skills of like, I should be naturally good at that. But everything is about putting in the rep. So I totally agree with that. I think the couple of things that I would add here is that like one, I don't know, there's this weird belief among people who are successful that they don't need to hire financial planners, you know, tax people, like lawyers, whatever. They're like, I figured that out. I can figure this out. But I think the thing you can learn from athletes is actually like, these are the most successful people in the world. They're the highest earners. They know that their time is absolutely best spent in the gym, working out, you know, getting their therapy, relaxation, and like you hire everything else out and stay in the lane that you're best at. Like, I think that's one big thing to me for athletes. And the other thing I was going to say is exactly what you said really around the discipline, right? Like there are people that are professional athletes that are there because of just their skill set, but that's a very small percentage. Most of the people that survive the long careers are the people that work the hardest and they have the most discipline. And if you look in, you know, business, if you look in the, the people who are the highest levels of larger companies, they are the people that were willing to work the hardest, be disciplined and continue to learn and improve. And I think you can apply that to really anywhere in life. Yeah. I love that, man. Well, that's a great way to finish. Appreciate you for sure. On. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming on, man. Let everybody know who the best place to follow you, which is obviously Twitter. You're the one that has me beat on followers. So I'll, I'll give you the, the congratulations on that. You've been killing it. Uh, yeah, man. I, I post every day on Twitter. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and then I've been posting quite a bit on Instagram as well, but you guys can find us, uh, our website's momentprivatewealth.com. And I'm sure you'll see Thomas and I engaging quite a bit on Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it now. Yeah. And, and your profile is at the sudden wealth for everybody to go follow, but yep. everybody, I uh, hope you found this one interesting. It was definitely nice to switch it up and talk more like life and philosophy than just like tax planning. Um, so Jacob, thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. And everybody, thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe. Subscribe. We'll see you back next week. Absolutely.